Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's Conversant is... Aaron Kinsvater, who is a professor of counseling at the University of Vermont. A couple weeks ago, or actually it says a week ago, but you know, YouTube's never exactly uh, accurate with the date, but very recently, Professor Kinsvater uh, released a video talking about the problems that he sees coming down the pipes for his university. These problems having to do with critical race theory under the guise of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and the moniker anti-racism, and how that is forming the groundwork for everything the university does. And in his videos, he's made two of them so far, he explains those problems in detail, as he does on my channel. He's been a longtime follower of my work for one reason or another. So we have been looking at the way that this critical race theory or critical theory more broadly has been advancing within the institution. That's what we get into. And then we get into how critical race theory and anti-racism is potentially going to ruin counseling and the principal values, the way of building up self-regard, positive self-regard, confidence, and mental health is under threat by a system of belief that is very fundamentalist. It's a very important conversation. He's also a very relaxed guy, perfect guy to have a conversation with. So without further ado, here is Professor Aaron Kinsvetter. Hello, Professor. Nice to uh, meet you in person. I'm a longtime follower. You know what? I, I noticed uh, I was searching for your name somehow, and you were like one of my first followers, like in, uh, in <laughs> June of 20, June, June 24th is when you uh, subscribed to my channel. <laughs> yeah, I seem of 2017. the incredibly terrible advice of going and getting a PhD at the time. I thought, wow, this guy's really sharp. He should go get a PhD. <laughs> <laughs> Quite possibly the worst career advice I've ever given in my life. You know, I was thinking about that. Um, somebody, somebody was asking me, like, where do you think you would have, uh, what would have happened if Evergreen hadn't have happened? I'm like, I probably would have uh, ignorantly tried to go for a master's in creative writing or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, little I mean, did I know. Yeah, well, I mean, it'd be interesting to know if there's. You know, I'm sure there's somewhere left that hasn't been um, taken over by all this, but it's it seems like it's um, increasingly hard to find. You know? Yeah, it's um, sad. It's, it's pretty much the prerequisite when you uh, go to join one of these graduate uh, programs. You've got to uh, more or less, um, you know, indicate your fealty to this to this uh, ideology so mm. yeah I saw um, speaking of fealty I saw there's a petition 
uh, against you. <laughs> yeah, I just found out about that yesterday. <laughs> I assume that that's extra college, like that's outside of your college. It's a bunch of people from outside that's bearing down on you. Well, I don't, I don't know if it is or is not. From what I hear, there were some people uh, from the university who were involved in the change.org uh, document, but that's that's just what I hear. I haven't looked at it or, you know, taken steps to find out who uh, who is involved with that. I I just found out about it yesterday. So, uh, actually, from a reporter from our local paper, asked me what my response was to it. Oh, okay. So, yeah. so on a scale of uh, bliss to tragedy, where's your stress level? Bliss. Oh. Bliss. Bliss. This is this has been going on um, for the last um, I don't know two two and a half years, and uh, I I have just been sick to my stomach uh, about this, I, and I'm I'm being quite serious over over the past. Um, past two years or so, uh, I think I vomited something like 60 times. And mm. the reason was because I would get so anxious about the possibility of being put in a situation where I was going to have to, um, you know, uh, I, I guess be kind of a mouthpiece for, uh, this ideology that is that's calling itself anti-racism, and I'm I'm talking about Kendi's version of anti-racism mm -hmm. and D'Angelo's version of anti-racism, and also having to find a way um, to engage in good faith with my students around these ideas without endorsing them. And uh, just every Sunday night before the, um, you know, during the semester before the week would start, I'd just be sick to my stomach. And sometimes after class, I would be sick to my stomach. And it, I think it just came from the anxiety and the tension of being uh forced closer and closer to endorsing an idea that I didn't want to, um, you know, while respecting uh, the need for students to have their freedom to explore these ideas. And uh, the moment that I decided that things had gone past the point where I could stay quiet and just sort of uh, quietly do my thing, which the, the, the way that I would try to negotiate this was um, I would teach Ibram X. Kende alongside of, uh, say, John McWhorter and, and Coleman Hughes and this semester Shelby Steele, and, and then really do my very, very best to not advocate for one position over the other and to steel man those positions. And that 
worked out okay. Students didn't always like it, but they they respected that I, I think that I was engaging around these issues in good faith. And, um, you know, I think at least some of them uh, became more clear about what their own views were. Uh, even though, you, you know, they may have strong objections to someone like Shelby Steele, they they were able to have stronger ideas about why uh, they objected to Shelby Steele. But it, it's just what's what's been happening within the college is it's been getting harder and harder uh, to do that because authors like Shelby Steele and John McWhorter and Coleman Hughes um, and even the um, – uh, the act of engaging in a heterodox teaching style have increasingly been referred to as inconsistent with the program, department, and university values and, quote, harmful practices. Mm-hmm. So, so, so I just had felt like I was slowly, slowly being boxed into a corner with this. And the moment when I came out and I said, listen, um, I'm not going to pretend anymore um, about my views, and I'm not going to try to um, explain my my views to. And I'm saying now to uh, people in my program, my department, and and within the college, I'm not going to explain, try to explain to you why I I think heterodoxy is important because you just clearly don't want to hear it. And uh, and I, the moment I came out and uh, made this video and say, listen, we are heading in a terrible direction here. We are reducing people to, um, you know, to racial composites and we are associating societal ills with a particular race and I know that's fashionable right now but that's a horrible way of thinking um, the moment that I came out I my stomach felt a hundred times better and I am doing just fine wow yeah and so it's I know that's but everyone's contacting me they're like oh my gosh I'm so stressed out did you see what people wrote about you it's like yeah yeah <laughs> that's what that's what if you don't know that that's going to happen by now i mean this this follows a certain formula right yeah <laughs> we've seen yeah. it before and that's that's just where universities are at and and uh, yeah so i i'm i feel great i really do i'm i'm good i don't i i will feel much better when i get to the point where um Kind of the interviews are over. Uh, I, you know, as much as I admire, um, you know, the people who I'm talking to, such as yourself, I, I don't really, <laughs> I don't think of myself as a, a very uh, good public figure. I'm sort of uh, more comfortable lost in the library stacks and so forth. Mm. And um, so I, I guess that part, like the doing the interviews part and so forth is, um, you know, has added a little bit of stress to my life, but, uh, you know, I, I, I think it's also important to do and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to do it. And, 
I've thought about these ideas for a while, and it is interesting to share them with a with a wider audience. But other than that, I'm doing I'm doing really well. Which I uh, which uh, my friends keep asking me how I'm doing, and and they're they're worried, and I just I I'm not worried. I I feel healthier than I've felt in I think three years, and it's. It's it's quite um, it's quite wonderful um, to have found my way back to a feeling of wellness. Hmm. Were you already siloed within your institution? Uh, you say your friends are asking about you. Are these friends within the institution or outside? Uh, no, I don't think I have any friends within the institution. <laughs> I'm I'm, uh, uh, I'm sort of a a little bit of a pariah. Uh, there and uh, I've spoken out on these issues before, um, and you know, I haven't been rude about it, but neither have I been particularly diplomatic, and uh, uh, I, you know, that has not won me any friends. And so, uh, yeah, I, I think I was fairly siloed within, siloed within the uh, institution, and never expected to get much in the way of support. Uh, from my colleagues there, although there have been some people who I've uh, have not met within the university who have um, uh, reached out to me and uh, you know and in, in, in just with encouraging messages, which I've really appreciated. And so, if and when this uh, blows over, I, I hope to find a little bit more of a, a like-minded community. But the thinking, as far as I can tell. Uh, is so uniform within the university around these issues, and for those for those who disagree um, with sort of the um, uh, the order uh, the orthodoxy within the university, they're so frightened that there's there's no one who's sort of willing to engage in. Uh, you know, regular meetings uh, d- designed to produce uh, alternative policies and so forth. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I've, I've found my source of professional support in outside organizations uh, like Heterodox Academy, for example. Yeah. One of my uh, frequent guests, Patrick Lee Miller, he's a professor of philosophy at a Catholic institution, and today he tweeted that Something along the lines of, uh, you know, imagine a Catholic college that allows vigorous debate and uh, of, of Catholicism, and uh, you can just full broadside, you can attack it all day long, you can even set up courses attacking it. But there's this other ideology, diversity, equity, and inclusion, that you cannot ever question, you cannot ever argue. Now, which is the Catholicism in this uh, context? Well, one is one. It's it's not which is Catholicism. It's which is fundamentalism, and the uh, Jonathan Rausch, uh, who is a um, aside from being just a, an amazing human being, has written so incredibly eloquently about this issue of fundamentalism, and uh, he wrote the book. Kindly Inquisitors, which I was republished, I think, in uh, 2013, 
and he has a new book coming out over the summer called The Constitution of Knowledge, which should also be very, very good. But he he talks about um, how he, he, he talks in Kindly Inquisitors about fundamentalism and how fundamentalism as a thought style can, you know, it's usually associated with religion, but it doesn't have to be. And the, the, the two tenets of fundamentalism are, um, one, to protect its core suppositions from being questioned. Okay. And uh, the second is to punish anyone who does uh, question the core suppositions. And so it's interesting. So here's here's a Catholic university that says, let's let's look at the diversity of thought about Catholicism within Catholicism, and let's look at the arguments against Catholicism. And that just sounds wonderful. But when it comes to DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, there is no um, there there is no dialogue allowed about that. Uh, there is no questioning of the sump- uh, the suppositions about that. And moreover, here's here's what's really creepy about it. The terms are never defined very clearly. So hmm. um, so what is diversity? What is equity? What is inclusion? No one really ever says. It's it's uh, all that is sort of conveyed by innuendo, and every now and then you'll see a term like critical consciousness thrown in there. Mm-hmm. And the reason why that's so di- now, on the one hand, that would work for professors like me who say, "Okay, well that's fine. Um, here's what my ideas about diversity, equity, and inclusion are. I think diversity includes." Uh, Diversity of thought, for sure, and inclusion involves inclusion of different perspectives, for sure. And nobody has said otherwise. So I have a certain amount of freedom there. But then what's happened is that university administrators have begun to come in and say, well, that's anti-DEI. And, you know, I might say, well, how do you know that? DEI hasn't been defined. Well, it just is. <laughs> oh. It's, it's, it's this crazy thing. And when you push for a specific definition of what DEI is, the pushback that you get is just extreme. I was sitting in a, a meeting um, with two administrators within the department and uh, the, the college that I work in, and I, I was saying, well, how are we going to define this if this is now going to be included in our annual uh, evaluation as uh, professors? How are you going to know uh, when you're doing these evaluations whether someone has done a good job on DEI or a not-so-good job on DEI? And uh, that uh, that conversation was shut down with some uh, veiled threats uh, to my employment, uh, uh, which, along the lines of uh, if I couldn't get on board with these ideas, which were not debatable, 
then I might find myself not having the energy to do the job that I needed to do or words to that effect. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So it's, it's in indefined and indefensible or undefendable. Well, you can, um, what, what, the way that this becomes a cudgel is that anyone at any time can say that you are not being consistent with this essential university value, but they never say how you're not being consistent. And they can say that anytime they want, because it's never really been defined very clearly. I mean, there's a document out there that has some vague, uh, you know, allusions to what this is all about, but there's absolutely no way to say what is and what is not diversity and what is and is not inclusion and what is and is not equity. So there's no real way to define it. So that what that does is that opens up a a cudgel that can be used for ideological compliance that says, don't ask too many questions or you're going to be anti-DEI, which is a term I just recently heard. I wasn't surprised at all to hear it, uh, but it's, you know, it's, it's something that an, an administrator accused me of. So, so if, if it is a tool to enforce conformity, how does that then shape the academic experience and uh, mission of the institution? Of course, it reorders all the core values around that. And then that is whoever has the power to define those things gets to shape every other core value. So where does this lead? uh, It leads to a lot of frightened people who don't know what to do. Um, There's a lot of frightened professors out there who are saying, what is DEI and um, how do I know if I'm – compliant with it or not and um and there's just this referral back to this sort of vague document and i i think what happens then is that a lot of professors you know i'm i'm sure there are many people there who believe that uh ibram x kendi and robin d'angelo are the pinnacle of intellectual refinement and uh yeah, I, that's how I feel too, and uh, you know would would just teach them and be very safe. But I I think that there are people who probably question the wisdom of uh, those uh, those works and the and the people um, who think similarly to those authors who know that Kendi and D'Angelo are clearly safe territory you know and uh, (laughs) and uh, you know people like shelby Steele and john mccorder aren't probably not and so i think it just it you know where i have seen this before this is so bizarre Uh, so i'm a counselor and uh you know i teach psychotherapy but i used to work with um clients and the it occurred to me the other day that i've seen this behavior before in abusive relationships where one person makes these sort of vague demands of how one person needs to do these things in order to um, in order to fulfill the needs of the other partner but what those things are 
are never quite defined. And so the the partner upon whom the demands are being made is always left in this this place of am I good enough? Am I doing the right thing? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know. And you know, you, you, you once you look at it from that lens, you begin to see how abusive this ideology is because you start to hear things like the work is never done yeah. and don't expect don't expect concrete answers about what the work is it just keeps people in this constant state of uncertainty where they know that they're supposed to do something yeah. and they know who the safe authors are but they don't really know what the parameters uh, of that of of the conversation are, and so they're afraid to step out of those. One of the things I noticed is that the provost uh, of the university, who sent around a uh, an email to the entire university community, uh, uh, noting that although the university values free speech. Uh, that I was clearly not speaking to the values of the university <laughs> and, uh, you know, students who felt uncomfortable uh, taking my classes now okay. you know, have the option to take uh, yeah. classes with other professors. But yeah. she, signed, uh, she signed her email in solidarity uh, that, you know, she has at the bottom in solidarity. And I thought, in solidarity with what? You know, I, you know, what? That's another one of those terms. How do I know if I'm in solidarity or not in solidarity? And is solidarity really something that, you know, the university is about? Or should we be facilitating uh, conversations and not necessarily always agreeing with each other? So it's it's just there's this there's this uh, there's this sense that you should get on board with something. And you sort of know what that something is, but you you don't really know how far you can step out of it or how safe you are, except when you cross that line, yeah. uh, you get a very strong response. When you teach, for example, from a heterodox perspective, uh, you know, I've just gotten generally really good responses from students, uh, even if they don't like the material, they they appreciate being exposed to it, but uh, from faculty, this is you know this is been described as not consistent with uh, what the curriculum should be, and um, authors like Shelby Steele have no place in the curriculum, and are this is a great one. Uh, those authors are not consistent with the DEI mission of the university. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So you know, again, there's that not there's that you're not DEI piece that's sort of a cudgel. So if if this destabilizes, if if this is radiating from the central hub of the university, which is now unarguably the administration, which yeah. is kind of a new development in in the university that the administration is the center. It used to be something yeah. else. Faculty had a much larger role yeah. for sure. So if the if the administration, which is the hub of the university now, uh, has this tactic at play, then it can control every spoke, every discipline. 
is now submitted to this. Uh, you know, so so the entire wheel of the university can be directed this way or that way. But every single discipline is now has to be in conformity with this, which makes DEI and its attendant philosophies the basis of every single discipline. Now, we can talk about how that works with science, but specifically with psychotherapy and counseling, how does that shape the entire project of counseling this is truly horrifying this is truly horrifying uh two years ago i would have said this couldn't never happen um but what is happening now uh, i'll give you an example in in my counseling program there's a policy initiative that I actually think has a decent uh, chance of passing, and one part of it is that we are is to adopt um, Eber, uh, to I think it's worded to continue the work of Ibram or build upon the work of Ibram X Kendi, and define as racist anyone who is you know not consistent with policies that somebody decides are anti-racist and. An anti-racist is someone who decides that someone is consistent with the policies that are determined by some group to be anti-racist. And um, I was really bothered when that came up, and I reached out to the dean of our college, and I reached out to the uh, faculty senate, and I just didn't get anything back, because where this is headed is... If this gets adopted in the counseling program, this will be taught in the counseling program. And while my experience is that the graduates of the counseling program are competent and have a very high degree of common sense, uh, very soon this will be the only thing that is allowed to be taught within the counseling program. Another policy in this same group of policy initiatives is that our interns, so when they go from the program and they go out into the community and they do their internships um, in, in outside mental health agencies to gain experience with actual clients, yeah. will be doing equity audits of their internship sites. So they're going to be determining and and this was worded as a gift oh, to no. these mental health centers so what i'm afraid is going to happen uh you know and i can i can talk a little bit more about psychotherapy but th there are two places where i am you know two years ago i would have said this is never going to happen now i am actively really frightened that this is ahead this is going to find its way to children, and this is going to find its way to people who are in mental distress, yeah. where eventually uh, counselors are going to feel that it is their job uh, to, under to help both children and clients who are experiencing mental distress understand themselves in these terms of either racist or anti-racist that's horrifying and I, I mean i guess this is already going on and you're starting to hear okay. about from public school so i'm horrified by that yeah. but 
Why is that horrifying? Why is it bad for mentally distressed and, and, and children to see themselves as either working towards racial justice or actively impeding it by not working toward it? Um, because the parameters of what constitutes uh, both with both with developing children and with persons are, who are in mental um, distress uh, – because the world is so much more complicated than racist and anti-racist. And there is uh, both children and people who are in mental distress have to make nuanced conversations about morality and ethics. And this is an ideology that says, no, um, hmm. there is no nuance to those conversations. Um, if you don't act in this way, you are, in essence, a bad person. And it is a, it is a, for, for, let me just talk about adults who are in mental distress. Uh, depression, and I'm talking about clinical depression, which is an agonizing condition for people uh, to experience. So this is not just sadness or feeling down. This is you know, this is a, an agonizing state of inappropriate guilt and uh, cognitive distortions and a lack of energy and a lack of interest in pleasure. The, the, the thinking style that often leads uh, to conditions like uh, depression uh, involves a number of cognitive distortions, one of which is black and white thinking, where one – views oneself or other people in overly um, rigid terms. They tend to view themselves as either good or bad based on whether they meet the conditions of what someone else thinks oh. are good or bad. So okay. this is literally the antithesis of mental health. Uh, this, is, this is telling people Go ahead and engage in those rigid cognitive distortions. Go ahead and think about yourself in these rigid cognitive terms. So in, in one respect, uh, distress, mental distress is caused when uh, you're thinking in these rigid terms and then reality doesn't match up. And, and so there's this distress. You're getting the signal that you're, you're wrong somehow. But then there's this all, also this distress that comes from placing your agency – your self-worth and your confidence in some sort of outer force, some sort of other, uh, you know, this, this, this site that comes out of you that you don't have any control over. So you're, you're a slave to that. Both of those are true. And it's, it's, it's not that it, um, the way that you're thinking about yourself doesn't conform to reality. It's that you're, um, the way that you're thinking about yourself, uh, causes you to experience, emotions that are consistent with that distorted view of reality. So uh, having a distorted view of oneself or of other people viewing oneself as fundamentally bad or guilty, for example, um, often will lead uh, to a parallel emotional process where one feels as if those things are true. And the way back from that kind of feeling is um, to begin to recognize when one is engaging in those cognitive distortions. But, you know, those kinds of distortions are being sold as a kind of refinement. 
you know, uh, on, you know, uh, on, on so you camp. can never get to a place where you start to replace these uh, incredibly faulty maps of reality with with uh, maps or uh, stories or ethics or morals that are m- more uh, flexible, even though they're n- never going to be accurate. They're at least flexible enough to, to give you some sort of agency and, and some sort of valuation system. And what anti-racists explicitly by by what Kendi teaches over and over and over again, there's all these Kafka traps that keep you from ever questioning it without falling outside of it or failing it somehow. Yeah, and people are. Um, I'm working with some uh, persons who are involved with this through an organization called Counterweight. Although I'm I'm not I don't want to speak for them here, but yeah. I'm hearing stories about people who are coming from these Kendi informed uh, diversity training, and they are a wreck. I mean, they've got people who are saying, "You're, you're racist. You're racist. You're racist because you are, um, uh, because you are questioning things or these things, and you're not buying into these things. And if you're questioning it, or if you're, if you're speaking up, or you're saying that's not okay with me, um, that's white fragility. It's, and you know, the the average person on the street doesn't have time." To sit down and think about this and say, my God, this is a screwed up way to think. You know, they just assume that uh, people like uh, Kendi and D'Angelo know what they're talking about and that they're writing in good faith and that people who are teaching those ideas, you know, well, they have PhD, so they must know, you know, so they don't (laughs) – Unless you can really sit down and engage with these ideas, it takes a long time to figure that out on your own. So when you run into this, when your average person who's, you know, a bank teller or, you know, an executive or somewhere in a a a, Coca-Cola driver, a Coca-Cola driver uh, gets told that you're a racist because you're saying that you're not a racist like that, that's a horrible thing to be. And, you know, these people would say, well, we're not calling you anything. Really, come on. That's what they're doing. They're using this as a cudgel. And, and it's really impacting the mental health of people. Yeah. Now, the, the story is different from children. And it's even, oh, it's even more terrifying. I bought this book because I just, I couldn't believe I heard about it. And I'm like, there is no way he actually said this this is the anti-racist baby book by oh, Kendi. God, this should have been called "How to Utterly Screw Up Children," um, oh. because uh, children, when they are developing, they need both space to explore and they need parameters and they need a certain kind of interpersonal environment that allows for flexibility and when they don't receive that you it shows up as pathology later in life carl rogers referred um to the environment that facilitates human growth and that um and that also facilitates recovery uh, from bad experiences as unconditional positive regard that if you can sit with someone and see the value in them regardless of what they may have done 
and I, I worked in a prison for a little while and I saw this and it's absolutely true. If you can sit with someone in that space, people who have, who have done horrible things will grow right there in the relationship. Um, but what Rogers uh, defined as one of the pathways to pathology is conditional positive regard. In other words, you will be uh, viewed as a worthy of being likable only when you meet certain conditions. And what Kendi is saying in this book is that pre-verbal children should be told, uh, you know, by their parents and teachers that they're you are either racist or you're anti-racist. There's no, there's nothing in between. He actually mm -hmm. says this, and then he goes on in step seven, and this is really, ah, uh, this is just really, really disturbing. Um, step seven is he says that children should confess their racism when they have it. And then at the back, he gives great advice to uh, parents where he says that um, you should begin, uh, you know, reading this book to children long before they really understand what anti-racism is. But children begin to pick up very, very early in life um, cues on when they are sort of you know, whether there are conditions placed on their worth uh, by their parents or not. Yeah. And yeah. this book is pretty much saying, yeah, you should do that. It's good for society. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, 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 the ignorance in, in this is just absolutely stunning. There, his formulation, you're either racist or anti-racist, means that all valuation, I, I think that one of the subtexts that you pick up, probably just as a human being, is that there is no definition for me, there's no value of me outside of that matrix. So that's the foundational value. And so therefore, it, it eventually has to be taught and made the uh, foundational value for every endeavor that you do. So one thing that you, One thing that you brought up was a little word called relationship it doesn't seem like there's a relationship going on there there is there's like a transactional relationship or something there's not it seems like there's there's a very small uh idea of relationship or friendship or love perhaps well it's 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 it the subtext of this book is that uh the relationship the love is is conditional uh on uh you know on it on adherence to this ideology I mean, just like, you know, just like what's being proposed in the counseling program that I work for. You're either racist or you're anti-racist. And, and also uh, with regards to how the university loves its professors through, and I'm, I'm kind of being metaphorical, but that evaluation process, yeah. that conditional, you know, belonging, which, which, you know, which is a different relationship. Of course, you should be evaluated. Of course, you should be, you know, a professional should be graded in some terms. But to make that the basis of everything else disregards everything except there, what conforms it, it, to it. Yeah, it absolutely do. It, it comes down to, you know, everything is about how well are you doing the work. And, um, yeah. you know, if you are not doing the work... Uh, then we are going to um, uh, 
you know, that's going to be reflected in your evaluation. And maybe that's not as big of a deal for tenured professors like me, although, you know, it clearly has, uh, you know, social consequences that are unpleasant. But many of the professors who are in college these days do not have tenure and nor are they on tenure track. So I can't imagine someone uh, who is not tenured who doesn't uh, fall in line with this ideology uh, speaking up against it. To return to just one moment to the anti-racist baby book, I think another um, really interesting small word in there is confess. Because if you unpack the word confess, you know, what you get underneath that is you're guilty of something. You know, you're you're bad is essentially what that's saying. And then you need to confess your badness and then someone outside of yourself yeah. is going to, I don't know, provide absolution or something. It's yeah. there's the, I would love to see uh, you had that uh, professor on. I just started seeing him, Eric, the rhetoric, uh, the rhetorician, Eric Smith. Yeah, Eric Smith, just a, a brilliant thinker. I would love to uh, – I hope I get to meet him at some point, but I would I would love for him to do a rhetorical analysis of anti-racist baby. Uh, that, that's a little bit outside of my uh, – I'll propose it to it. Yeah, I, I – um, because, because doing that kind of rhetorical analysis is a little outside my field, but I can, yeah. I can see that there is something deeply wrong uh, with – telling children that they need to confess something and that there's nothing between what yeah. essentially is a good person and a bad person. I mean, yeah. that's really what this is saying. Uh, uh, you know, a racist is a bad person and an anti-racist is a good person. And there's no, you know, there's nothing in between. that. That's yeah. madness. In, in our society, this might be unfair. I hope you uh, you treat this as a charitable uh, you know proposition. But it seems like counseling and therapy uh, are descendant of the priest class. Uh, I, I think that the, the the roots of dealing with people as a shepherd or as a pastor come from the church, uh, and so I'm sure that that psychotherapy and all of its derivatives and counseling have done a lot of work to make it secular or you know like make it match up to evidence and and to 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 think about it in a, in a bunch of different ways so it, it seems like this anti-racism as construed by kendi and d'angelo is also derivative of certain versions of theological doctrine there's a lot of aspects of that with the confession uh and the absolution or the the constant sinning it's very calvinist it's it's got uh, aspects of catholic guilt in there it's got a lot of protestant stuff going on in there um so i'm wondering how you think of counseling as opposed to a priests like how do you, how do counselors stay off the uh, you know culty route how do how does a counseling withhold itself from you know becoming the dictator of reality to its subjects and how does that contrast with what anti-racism would have them do oh uh, uh, let, let me let me say two things about that um, because there's a very specific answer to your question and I really think, that counseling needs to uh, take a very close look at this movement. 
but uh, but the the in terms of um, spiritual counseling, um, there are uh, you know Christian and other kinds of spiritual counselors, but it is a with from within counseling within that tradition, it there is no sense that there there are not conditions of worth in those therapeutic relationships in other words you're not um okay at, le- at least when it's ethically done no one yeah. is saying you will be okay when you uh you know properly conform to this particular doctrine what what uh christian based counseling and and other kinds of spiritual counseling are about is using the wisdom of a person's faith and bringing that to bear on seemingly intractable problems that the person is experiencing in their life. So how can I use my faith in in order to help me um, persevere in the face of this overwhelming depression? And counselors who have a religious orientation are generally um, looking to bring the wisdom of the faith tradition and not putting that on the client, but talking with the client about how their faith might inform the problems yeah, okay. that they're experiencing and the solutions to them. I'm not personally a religious person at all, but uh, I know some people who do do uh, that kind of counseling, and it's, um, you know, I, I think that there's something beautiful about people of faith being able to bring that system of um, believing to bear on on uh, you know very difficult uh, problems now in terms of how do uh, counselors avoid the path of authoritarianism what we have in place is a code of ethics uh, that is supposed to do that and what this code of ethics is designed to do is it's designed to protect uh, people who are, say, gay and transgender from being um, judged based on the counselor's faith. And uh, it's, it's one of the first articles in the American Counseling Association Code of Ethics, um, which is available to anyone online. Um, but what... What, what this article says is that counselors refrain from imposing their beliefs, their behaviors, or their values onto their clients, especially when their uh, beliefs about the client are derogatory in nature or when um, they do not relate to the counseling client's goals. And I have been unable to understand how anti-racism fits into that picture, uh, at least as it's being, you know, if, it, if it's going to be taught as doctrine within counseling programs, we have got to have conversations about uh, hmm. <laughs> how counselors are, are going to use this ethically in session. And that... I have just not heard conversations about that yet, wow. and I have yeah. not found that uh, conversations about that are welcome uh, at the University of Vermont. 
So not only is it is it posed to impose itself upon the uh, client relationship or the, the, the counselor-client relationship where the counselor is now imposing this, but what it is imposing is a pathway to pathology because it, it inserts into the client. So even if it was a beneficial thing, it's not. <laughs> so it's violating that. And then it's doing some possibly very... Uh, damaging things to uh, the mental health of individuals i think so it's too there the, part of the problem is that the counseling profession itself has become very woke and trying to trying to get uh data about this into the professional knowledge base is extremely difficult because editors don't want to publish you know uh, articles on uh, the uh, ill effects of, say, the anti-racist doctrine uh, yeah. on counseling clients. Now, I think we'll find it there eventually because I can just tell you anecdotally, uh, and again from uh, having close relationships with people who are working with persons who are contacting counterweight, um, it is having a negative effect on people. And, and there really are uh, you know, they, they are extremely stressed uh, about the uh, insinuation that they're racist and and all these other terrible things. But uh, the, 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 we have just not gotten to the point in counseling as a profession where uh, we have good data on that. And part of it is because I think counselors in general are terrified to ask that question, especially uh, people like me who have PhDs who would generally, my job is to contribute to the knowledge base of the profession. Nobody wants to have their name on a journal article calling this into question because this ideology is so effective at protecting itself with the brand of racist and racism. So. Yeah. There's, uh, I mean, what's going to happen then? I mean, this is malpractice. This is the entire, yes, the, the entire industry is going to be yes. culpable for this. I hope so. Um, I, like, I, I, like, I think that anyone who is engaging in these practices and not providing any kind of alternative probably is, um, acting in a breach of ethics. Um, what, but part of the problem is, is that the, the code of ethics that counselors use is also open to interpretation. And so it, one of the things that it says in the code of ethics is that a fundamental value of the counseling profession is social justice without really defining what social justice means, which I, you know, in the traditional sense of the word, I have no problem with, but that word has just been uh, co-opted by uh, people who want to push a fundamentalist ideology. And so, um, so, so people would argue back, I think, well, social justice is part of our professional mission, too. Yeah. So, uh, you know, hopefully there will be uh, more nuanced uh, conversations about this and more research, but the curtain, the, the the current political environment uh, within university is working very hard to make sure that that doesn't happen. And 
that that environment uh, uh, you know hmm. easily extends uh, into the counseling profession itself, uh, which yeah. is. Yeah, that it's really disturbing that you're saying that these uh, these interns are now going to go around and give people scores, give all these other places scores, which will then affect, you know, who knows? They'll be putting it on the list, so they're they're being prepared in the very Big Brother fashion to start tattling on all these. They're they're carriers for this uh, and what, police. They're the what 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 did it used to be called in the um, the People's Revolution? The um, Red Guard. Yeah, the Red Guard. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, the, the problem is, is that the mental health agencies and so forth are also very susceptible to claims that they are, you know. Yeah, yeah. Unjust. Not. They're bigoted, yeah. Yeah, that they're bigoted or that they're, they're not anti-racist, so they must be this. Because if you don't do equity audits, then you're not anti-racist. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. that's the proposal. Uh whether that happens, I don't know, but that is a proposal, and I see absolutely no what, – what I keep trying to tell people is that this is like watching a truck barreling down a hill with no brakes. Like there is there is nothing yeah. to stop a further um, – yeah. Uh, you know, expansion of these ideas, and it just keeps recreating itself in more and more extreme forms. Yes. So, so where is the hope in this most dire of situations? Or better yet, uh, how do we compose ourselves in the proper way toward this? Well, that's um, so I have a lot of answers to that. Um, here's here's the first one. Um, and this because I've, I've received a lot of uh, emails from people who are concerned and say, what can I do? Um, here's what you can do. Do not give one more dime to universities who have diversity, equity, and inclusion that is either ill-defined or does not include diversity of thought and inclusion of different perspectives. Uh, Kent State University, which is my alma mater, uh, contacted me and asked for money. And I, I said, well, you, you, you've got this DEI program, uh, but you don't really define what diversity, equity, and inclusion are. And I had a list of questions uh, that I had for them. And the person who I talked to was really nice and said, oh, our, you know, our, our, our vice president of diversity, equity, and inclusion would be more than happy to talk with you or I can get answers to these questions, which I wanted to know, does diversity include diversity of thought? Does inclusion include inclusion of different perspectives? Um, is, do you mean equity as a political term or is equity the same thing as equality? And so those were some of the questions that I had. And he said, oh, I'll get right back to you. And um, he got back to me and said, actually, the vice president of diversity, equity, and inclusion doesn't want to talk to you. And I said, I'm not surprised, but I am not giving Kent State University another dime. So when the universities call you and say, um, please, can you contribute – uh, we have students that are doing X, Y, and Z wonderful things with, you know, yeah. for these great purposes. 
ask them if they have diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, programs. And if they do, ask if those ideas are well-defined and if they include diversity of thought and inclusion of different perspectives. And if they don't, just say, I'm not giving you another dime. Forget it. And trust me, that will turn things around uh, in a hurry. The second thing that people uh, can do, like the the average person who's who doesn't have time to look into this, I understand that folks are going to have to start yeah. doing a little more homework or our country is really in trouble. You cannot – people cannot – they cannot take at face value – terms like diversity, equity, and inclusion, and anti-racism, they have to understand that these terms have been concocted in yeah. order to achieve maximum manipulation of your best intentions. And I am absolutely certain about that. They're, they are designed so that you cannot possibly dissent from them. Who doesn't, you know, who doesn't want to be an anti-racist and who wants to be anti-DEI? Nobody, but that's how it gets in the door. So people mm -hmm. have to really do their homework and understand that these words, these pretty sounding words are not at all uh, what, uh, what they probably think they are. They have an entirely different meaning on campus and it's authoritarian nature. And the final thing that I think um, we can do is that people have to become secure with themselves and they have to become secure uh, with friends and maybe whole communities saying you're a racist. You have to uh, be able to stand up and say and mean it, eh, I don't think so. I think you're wrong about that. That doesn't make sense to me. Nope. <laughs> No, I'm not. And, and just leave it there. Like, if, if those three things happen, we're going to be okay. If they don't, uh, I would imagine that uh, some other kind of institution is going to have to arise and replace universities because they clearly have gotten far off track. Uh, they've yeah. been way more taken over than they uh, should have allowed themselves to be. And, um, uh, uh, you know, professions like counseling, maybe, maybe those also are going to have to wither on the vine if counselors do not find a way, uh, to moderate and regulate themselves and the, and the literature that's going out there. And I haven't seen any indication that that is being done within the profession. I, I see the opposite. Yeah, there's uh, there's quite a lot of heavy currents, and this this probably isn't counseling, but I've spoken with uh, Shirut. Uh, oh, she's fantastic. I, yeah, I can't yeah, I remember know. her last name right now, but um, but she's she's a therapist, yeah. and she she shows on Instagram like therapy is so woke, and and it's promulgating like more and more trauma and more more fragility. Like so, in in practice, you see it wrecking people, but because it's inflaming them with the sense of purpose, they I guess it's a trade off in some respect. Um, 
but it, 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 it's really good at front loading uh, the goodness, right? It, it's really good at if you teach somebody that, okay, you have all these problems, but they can all be fit in this container is that your problems are sex- subsequent to the problems of society. Therefore, you need to serve changing society and yourself will follow, you know, your, your own salvation will follow in the way yes. I, I, I suppose. Uh, so... But you'll never reach that salvation because you should never expect concrete goals or that the work will ever be done. It yeah. it it makes one constantly beholden to renewing their faith without ever actually accomplishing much of anything except maybe, you know, proselytizing. Yeah you know, to their, to their friends. And that also is, uh, you know, talking about mental health. I think that every time, I think that a lot of people on some level don't really believe that life can be easily divided into racist or anti-racist. And I think that every time someone feels the need to proselytize uh, this ideology or every time this person, you know, maybe someone at church, they're invited to join, say, at, at their church group, an anti-racist, uh, uh, you know, group or something. And they're kind of like, oh, I don't, I don't know if I should do that, but they do because of social pressure. So they have to, um, they they have to buy into this ideology either uh, to. Uh, avoid some sort of social isolation or in order to, you know, gain something that they would really like to have. I think that takes a toll because I think adherence, uh, saying something that you don't believe or uh, that you don't deeply believe or behaving in a way that's not consistent with what your true values are, I think that really diminishes people's sense of personhood and so I, I i think even as this you know wokeness might provide a path to meaning for some people it diminishes their sense of self as they follow it hmm. so it's gain serious. the world lose your soul kind of thing not to get religious. I don't know what you gain, but I, I do think that there's a soul-sucking element to this. <laughs> uh, well, um, yeah, I mean, I, I try to... I try to see more than just the negative side of it, but I, I see how it's taking over churches, universities, professions, uh, media, government, yeah, think, law. Yeah, that's really scary. Well, I think one of the one of the hard things, too, is that there probably are um, schools of thought that would also be called anti-racism that are legit anti-racism. You know, yeah. but that wouldn't be Kendi's version. What I really wish is that what universities should do immediately is stop. <laughs> Two things that universities need to do: one, define precisely what you mean by things like diversity, equity, and inclusion. And when do not toss around words like harm and safe space. Say exactly precisely what you mean. And if they can't do that, then not only are they not being useful, they're being manipulative. Um, and, And while they are working on that, 
they should stop using broad terms like social justice and um, uh, you know anti-racism and intersectionality. What universities would be really great at is addressing intractable problems stemming from you know issues of race, which are out there. Racism still occurs. Uh, there's act, there's great evidence that. Uh, there is such a thing as what uh, as systemic racism, but systemic racism is another one of those terms that we really need to stop using because it's too broad. Uh, what 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 universities would be great at doing is bringing together people with different points of view, these very intractable problems, and then defining what the problem is. Uh, coming up with solutions, and then uh, measuring whether the solution uh, actually addresses uh, the problem that they're trying to help with. That's called evidence-based advocacy. Yeah. And it's, a, it's an easy, non-political, uh, everybody's invited uh, mm. way of approaching these problems, but mm -hmm. there's no... Uh, it, there's no particular ideology associated with evidence-based advocacy. And I think, yeah. you know, I think universities are sort of selling ideology. Uh, yeah. Well, days. they all have these uh, vice presidents of equity inclusion, you know, and which is just another, it's just a ideological uh, litmus test. I don't know what those people do other than set up, you know, that they set up these events uh, that, that usually are all promoting this ideology, you know, and then I guess they implement all these trainings. So everybody thinks the same way too. It's just like you're, you're establishing a vice president that polices everybody else in the university. And what's that based on? It's based on one tiny little sliver of what was studied in the university, which is bent around and become the center of it. You know, and it's really too bad, too, I have to say, because I absolutely positively believe that America can come back from its political uh, divide that it's experiencing right now. I absolutely believe it. And the, the, the diversity, equity and inclusion officers could be facilitating that process mm -hmm. simply mm -hmm. by bringing people uh, together uh, who might have uh, different uh, – uh, points of view and helping them to, to, to really just have, helping them to know each other. And yeah, yeah. I, I think that would do a lot. Uh, I don't, I don't in any way speak, uh, for any organizations that do this, but it has been my pleasure to be involved with an organization called Braver Angels where, mm. uh, and, and their sole purpose of Braver Angels is to bring what they call, reds and blues together and, and talk about, you know, what their common ground is. And I have yeah. to say, people have a lot more in terms of common ground than they do in terms of differences. A lot more. It, mm -hmm. it, but it's just when they get caught up in these rigid ideologies, um, like that's lost. And it, it seems to me to be the most common sense thing in the world that uh, what what diversity, equity, and inclusion programs on a university campus would be doing is saying, "Hey, um, you know, person on the right, uh, come 
come meet this transgender person and, um, you know, hey, you know, I don't know. Uh, it would it would have to meet this person on the right and see see what you yeah. have in uh, common. Antifa, come over and meet a Patriot Prayer guy. Well, now it that would, might be a little bit hard with the <laughs> Well, I mean, the reason why they can't do that is that the, their ideology, their their fundamental units aren't broad enough to bring difference together. So what you would have to do is replace the very foundation of the university, at least the humanities, on humanity, a concept of humanity. And they've lost that. Well they've lost well that. Said. Well said. Yeah, the humanities cannot, they, they will very soon uh, lose any legitimate claims they yeah. have to humanity, because what they're doing <laughs> is dehumanizing, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, counselor. Yes, sir. I, I need to, I need to shuffle along to my, uh, other job. Thank you so much for, uh, putting out that video standing up. I, you know, I was surprised, but I'm really happy for you that you're, you're relieved. Uh, I'm sure there's, uh, you know, calculations that you had to make, uh, on a variety of levels for that, but, but trusting your gut and then being rewarded by that same gut, uh, I'm really happy that, 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 that you have that uh, to stand on and to go forth with. Well, watching people like you help me to find my way back to that, Benjamin. So I appreciate it. And, um, you know, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to, to uh, uh, talk with you this afternoon. Take good care. I'm going to end it there. Congratulations for reaching the end of the discussion. If you enjoyed it, do be sure to leave a review or a comment or a thumbs up or whatever you need to do to show that glorious algorithm that this is some good stuff. And do be sure to go and check that back catalog as it is brimming full of fantastic conversations. Links to provide monetary support are down there in the description as well. Have a good night.